0: On this week's podcast, we're joined by the man behind Forge Leadership, Simon Barrington, as he shares the leadership lessons he's learned during a very diverse career, from missions work in Taiwan, to telecommunications management, to heading up the work of Samaritan's Purse in the UK. Well, thanks
1: Peter and uh, it's really weird to be on the other side of the microphone uh, today and uh, looking forward to all the difficult questions you're going to ask me and I'm a bit worried what you'll sound like without any music playing in the background.
0: (laughs) Well, we've known each other a long time so I think I'll be gentle with you and I think I can cope with uh, no background music while we ask the questions, so... (laughs) Uh, I mean, I kind of know your story, but the listeners may not so much we've worked together for several years now. But first of all, could you tell the uh, listeners a bit about your background, your upbringing that took you on this journey into leadership?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm a Welshman, and um, you always take that with you. I think that's something that never leaves you. <laughs> and um, rugby is in the blood, and uh, Cardiff City getting into the Premier League is kind of you know major achievement uh, this year. But I've lived in exile in England for nearly 30 years now. And um, part of the leadership journey for me was really as a young lad, age 16, Um, knowing that I had a musical gift and wanting to use that in some way. And uh, some people in church really kind of just encouraged me And uh, we went and put on uh, Jesus, uh, sorry, Joseph and his amazing technical (laughs) dream coat uh, in a local school with like full orchestra and kids choir and people paying to attend. Um, I don't think I'd ever attempt to do something like that now. It just at the time, it kind (laughs) of seemed kind of normal and people around me just cheered me on. And then I became a Christian when I was 17. Um, through three girls in, um, uh, sixth form who just came up to me and said, Simon, you know, do do you know if you're a Christian or not? And I had to go, no, I don't. And so they started opening the Bible for me and decided to follow Jesus. And uh, that's been a lifelong pursuit for me uh, since then. And as with so many of the leaders that I've interviewed, leadership and and coming to faith kind of go hand in hand. So I became head boy in school and then um, in university. uh, I always remember the day I was sat in the coffee bar in university and three of the Christian Unity exec came up from the year above and went, we think God's telling us that you should be the president of the Christian union. I go, what? (laughs) Um, That's a bit bizarre. Um, And then uh, during that time um, as president of the Christian union, uh, meeting some missionaries from Thailand and uh, hearing about the work that they were doing to rescue child prostitutes um, off the streets of Bangkok and really falling in love and starting to pray uh, for Southeast Asia and uh, going to a Keith Green concert, um, in Bristol, well, actually, Keith Green had died, and it was his wife, Melody Green, who was doing a memorial concert for him—a famous uh, musician back in the uh, '70s—and uh, his wife was going on a farewell tour, and and and. Th- Hundreds and hundreds of people stood up and gave their lives to the cause of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the world um, in Bristol that night. Uh, maybe you were there while well, you were there, Peter, but maybe some of the listeners were there. And uh, I did. And as a result of that, I uh, went to live in Taiwan uh, straight after university. And uh, that was my first experience, really, uh, of leading on the mission field and, and cross-cultural uh, mission, something that was different to define my leadership later on. So those were the early days, really. People who, who believed in me, who saw potential, who took a risk, um, who saw something that I didn't see at the time, who came around me, supported me, allowed me to fail, picked me back up when I did fail, um, and just encouraged me um, to step into the gifting that they could see, but but I couldn't at the time.
0: Yeah, it brings back memories of myself in my twenties, leading mission teams overseas with Youth with a Mission. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned in those early days serving in Taiwan?
1: I think the biggest lesson I learned in Taiwan was that actually I'd gone there to change the world. You know, I was twenty-one. Um, you've got all the emotion of standing up at a concert and giving your life to a cause. Um, and then you get off the airplane, and, and within a couple of days, you realize just, A, what a massive task it is, B, how ill equipped you are for the task, and C, uh, what a lifelong um, journey it's going to be. So actually, I would say that whole time in Taiwan for me was quite an isolating experience. It was one where um, the long-term expats you know, saw short-termers come and go, and therefore, they were a bit, uh, some of them really invested in me, but others were kind of, well, he's going to come and go. Um, The other short-termers, some of them were there just for the jolly. Um, Some of them I didn't get on with. Um, I didn't speak the language, and so I I found it really quite isolating. Of course, you have to remember how old I am, Peter. And these were the days before email and mobile phones. So I remember um, it. <laughs> <you> know, a- <laughs> access to the family was, uh, you know, those blue airmail letters that you kind of wrote on the wrote on the edges of, as well, down the sticky bits to get as many words as you possibly could onto them. And uh, I got to ring home once during the whole time I was there, and that was on Christmas Day. Oh. Um, and uh, so you kind of forget that there was no email, there was no Zoom, there was no Skype, was no FaceTime. Uh, it really was very isolating. And my, and my lesson through that actually was it caused me to throw myself onto God, caused me to immerse myself in Uh, the scriptures in the Bible. And I would look back on that time as a time when God really worked in my life in a significant way where I knew a dependency on God um, that only comes out of an isolation experience. And one of the things I've learned later on in life, I suppose, is that many of the times in which God works most powerfully in a leader's life are those times when they become isolated. They're isolated because of health, they're isolated because of family circumstances, they're isolated because of their ministry situation, they're isolated because uh, their network has fallen apart about them or they failed. Um, but actually right at that moment, that's the moment where God's got their attention. Um, everything else has been stripped away. Because the problem with being a leader is actually, you have so many trappings that go with it, so many support networks, so many uh, people around you, so, so many, uh, the, the title. Um, and when that all gets stripped away and you're on your own again, then you really have to dig deep to go, who am I? Who am I really? Um, what's my identity? What do I really believe? Um, Am I really dependent on God? So uh, there was one instance in the time in Taiwan where um, I'd run out of visa to stay in Taiwan, had to go back to Hong Kong, had a hundred dollars, hundred US dollars in my wallet, no credit cards, arrived back in Hong Kong. I'd been told it'd take three days to get a new visa. $100 $100 would survive me three days. I went in to get the visa and they went, it was this sort of Thursday. They said, oh, I'm really sorry, but I'll close the next five days because of holidays and come back next Wednesday. And, and 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 in reality, I only had enough money to stay until saturday or sunday Uh, and what do you do in that circumstance i don't have a flight back to the uk (laughs) i don't have money to stay in hong kong um i'm not sure i knew that you could wire money in those days Uh, you know uh, what do you do and and in the church on the sunday i went to church in st andrew's church in kowloon in hong kong and i was praying and i was crying and uh you know god what what have you done you know what what am i going to do um, the money to stay in the hotels had run out. And, and, and that was just a cheap, it was a YWCA, I think I was staying in a really cheap hotel. And uh, and as I walked out of that service in that Anglican church on that Sunday morning, a Chinese lady came up to me and, and basically said, oh, God's told me to give you this and handed me an envelope, which had $100 in it. And she knew nothing of my circumstances, absolutely nothing at all. Um, and I walked out of that church with $100 in my pocket, which I spent very carefully until the day when I got the, the, um, the visa and then ended up at the airport. And I was so proud that I had $10 left in my wallet when I arrived at the airport. And then as I walked through immigration, it was like, oh, it's $10 airport tax to get out of the airport. And <laughs> so I spent my last $10 um, on that. But, but when everything stripped away, you know where's our dependency yeah and who are we really and that was a vital lesson um, in those days
0: so it looks like god was really preparing you to then move on into quite a high up role with um bt and telecommunications it's funny you're talking about back then there was no internet so what was that <laughs> what was that like from sort of putting into practice those hard lessons you learned into being high up in management with bt
1: Yeah, well, I didn't start up as a senior manager in BT. I started up um, writing software. It was the days of Windows version one, so you can imagine how many bugs there were in that. And uh, we were writing software for telephone entry machines. And I just happened again and again and again to have the right bosses who saw potential in me and took risks in me. So my first boss, Nick Force, You know, just mentored me, um, put me up for opportunities that really were way above my level of competency, but he saw something in me. And so uh, my experience in BT was they were fabulous, actually, at developing people, at seeing the potential in people, at taking risks. Um, with people. And and as a colleague said one time, promoting you above the level of your incompetence. Um, And so I learned through that um, period, I think, um, again, to um, step into opportunities that were in front of you and to not be fearful of them, but to have courage to to step into those and see what God was going to do. And during that time, I ended up on significant projects um, as the internet was launched, as um, Callminder was launched, as um, an opportunity came to go and work in the cabinet office, which I took, and then as opportunities came to be part of um, creating new companies out of BT with its intellectual property um, portfolio. Um, but I think it, you know, I learned it's all about the people. It's all about the people around, you have around you. It's all about the people who um, invest in you. And it's all about the people that you then invest in as well. And so um, it, during that period, I think the biggest learning for me was that. Most corporates and most organizations drive managers up a capacity ladder um, where they um, it's all about their personal development, their strengths, strengths finder, their skills, building that up. And then you get to a certain point where you realize actually it's got nothing to do with you and your skills. It's got more to do with your character and people lead people who are being led mm. um it's all to be it's all about you know who are you following what's your character where are you leading out of and can you create what i call environments of of truth and grace where other people can flourish where other people can develop where other people can reach their whole perfect uh, whole potential i was just uh, you know you can call it fortunate. Um, I believe God put me in places where I had bosses, uh, Christian and non-Christian, who who did that for me yeah. uh, during the years in BT. But all through that time, I really wrestled with, hey, God, you've called me to missions. And here I am driving shareholder value from a multinational uh, telecoms company. What's going on? <laughs>
0: So you sort of mentioned there about you'd been working with a mission group in Taiwan, but then God called you back into Christian ministry with Samaritan's Purse. What was that Mm. transition like? Because it was a completely different career path for you.
1: Yeah, well, I think um, both my wife and I, um, during the career time in BT, were constantly going and knocking on the doors of people like Tierfund and War Vision and and others, and saying God's called us to mission, and <laughs> and it was never the right place and never the right time. And then uh, a fantastic guy in Tierfund offered me the opportunity to go with him on a trip uh, to see their operations in the Philippines um, and in Hong Kong and to, to work with their partners on strategic development as well. And for the first time, I think I saw where those two things were coming together, where the business skills and the heart for mission were coming together. And I don't think I'd ever seen that before. I think I was kind of struggling with... Well, if I'm going to missions, I need to go to theological college. Well, how can I do that with a young family because I, I need to pay the mortgage and and I've got this good job and uh, what do I do? And yet um, with Andrew taking me on that trip to Tear Fund, my eyes were really open to actually the whole range of skills that are needed in, in the mission context and how I could apply my business skills into that situation. And, and there was an incident on that trip where we went to Smoky Mountain Um Smoky Mountain back in those days was a big rubbish temp outside Manila, uh, home to 4,000 families. And Tierfarm were doing some fantastic work with medical clinics on the edge of that. Um, Uh, rubbish tip and as we walked away from that rubbish tip we walked through this slum community that had just uh, suffered a massive fire in the weeks before and down onto Manila Harbour Manila Harbour is beautiful warm sunshine crystal clear blue seas out into the harbour and we're standing there looking out with this rubbish tip behind us and one of the girls from the rubbish tip came up and and started talking to us and as part of that conversation she was asking us through an interpreter "Well, well what do you do what do you do you know and the thought of telling a nine-year-old girl who is malnutritioned and you can see the the yellowness in her hair that is the mark of malnutrition and the the extended um uh, belly that's the mark of malnutrition, and, and she had rags on as well and i can see her now you know because my eyes I can actually see her and mm-hmm. and and she said to me well, well what do you do and and you know how do you in that moment go well i drive you know, shareholder value for a multinational telecommunications company that makes entry machines. I mean, it was just, it was just <laughs> bizarre and ridiculous. And and at that point, it led me on a journey of going, well, what is out there? How can I use my skills? And uh, again, you know, God led me to um, a position in Samaritan's Purse and becoming chief executive of Samaritan's Purse at the, at the ripe old age of 37 um, back in 2003. And... Uh, I'd never worked in the international development sphere before, um, never um, led an organization before. And so I had 14 wonderful years as chief executive of Person and the Billy Graham organization as well, during which I learned some phenomenal lessons about how to lead and how not to lead as well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing quite like seeing the work Uh, firsthand and I had the privilege of traveling all around the world with you on some of these trips to see the amazing work of Samaritan's Purse but there were moments I think both of us were just so moved and uh, overwhelmed by the need I remember us going to uh, a refugee camp of 50,000 people in South Sudan then I remember us going to Uganda to this dirty water source that was just brown Mm -hmm. water and just thinking how can we make a difference What was that like for you trying to meet needs in some very challenging situations and how did your faith help you deal with that?
1: I think lots of people ask me that question and um, of course, you know, on the television you see the huge need and and we're reporting back about that huge need. But um, in all of those circumstances, you just meet the most phenomenal people. Yeah, and you'll know that, Peter. You know, yeah. the Samaritan's staff right around the world, the the volunteers, you know, um, you know. there's a saying here, isn't it? We say, you know, how are you? And say, I'm fine under the circumstances. Well, none of these people live under the circumstances. They're all rising above the circumstances and punching some holes in the darkness. And that is just so inspirational. You know, I remember meeting a, a woman in, in Mozambique who, um uh basically got up at four o'clock, walked seven miles to plough a field, got paid fifty P um for ploughing the field for four hours, came back, um, made um the meal for her husband and her family, and then once she'd finished doing all of that, she'd make another meal and take it to uh three orphans who lived in a headed uh, uh an orphan headed household and feed them and read to them and teach them and then she get back and go to bed and then she's up at four o'clock the following morning, you know, and in the midst of horrific circumstances, you've just got people who know what it means to really love God, to serve him and not to complain. <laughs> and there is a contentment there um, and, you know, Paul says, doesn't he, whether I have everything or nothing, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Well, I- I'm not sure I can say that, but they could say that. Uh, whatever the circumstances, I've learned to be content. And there's a joy, you know, you'd walk into the villages and, and there was dancing receptions and food laid on. And and then you'd go to their dirty water source, you know, and and, and it's almost like in the hardest of circumstances you see the presence of god in the most significant way and that's a paradox it's a polarity it's a tension it's something that i don't fully understand you know i think some of my holiest moments were Standing at the graves in Beslan, um, after three hundred children had got killed by Chechen rebels in a in a school, I don't know if you remember that story. And and we were there days after, and standing at the grave and and weeping um, with the locals, but at the same time being able to bring um, the presence of God into that situation. So so what is it about the gospel that actually, in in the ruins, there is resurrection in the death there's hope of life in the darkness there's light you know and that for me sums up the christian faith and the christian gospel that in going into the dark places then you see the light of christ not that you bring the light of christ but you actually see the light of christ in those circumstances as well
0: i guess you took on another challenge you know leaving samaritan's purse to start something from scratch to pioneer forge leadership consultancy so what led you to do that and what's it all about so
1: about a year and a half ago um i was restless in my spirit and i was questioning god about about why i was restless i i love samaritan's post love what we were doing um but there was a restlessness there and and uh in praying with my wife and, and friends i felt really, very really it was the right time to to step out of samaritan's person and, and the increasing burden that actually um Leadership is about identity. It's about leaders being secure in their identity and who they are. It's about them leading with resilience and I call it inner strength. Uh, It's about them having integrity. It's about them having a deep level of insight and intimacy with Jesus and then being able to influence um, much broader. And for me, that climbing up the character ladder on the capacity ladder was something I came to late in life. And I got a real burden to actually take that down to the next generation and say, what what could we do here? What what, What could happen if leaders in their late teens, early 20s really got the fact that the biggest influence they can bring is if they lean into Jesus, if they know who they are in Christ, have a deep sense of security in that, have build a resilience uh, that will last them a lifetime of ministry, uh, know what it is to stick to their core beliefs and values and lead with integrity, and then and then we could change the world if that happens. And, and you know, I call that planting, well, Trevor Waldock calls that planting a walnut tree, i.e. planting something that might not come to fruition in my lifetime. So, so God's called me out to plant something that may, I may not see while I'm alive. Okay? And that is the rising up of a generation, the rising up of generation of, of the generation we now call millennials to be leaders who are rooted in the Scriptures, who really understand who they are in Christ, and are able to go and change society in all sectors of society. So, so to try and uh, facilitate that and form that, we set out in doing a big bit of research over the last year, um, which we've done with Bible Society and, and Redcliffe College and, and Yeoman's Marketing to to go. Um, Can we talk to millennials about how they're starting to lead? There's been lots of stuff about millennials saying they're uh, lazy, instant need, instant gratification, uh, a trophy for just showing up. They're entitled um, and uh, narcissistic. And we went, even if that's true, they're about to become the leaders of our organizations. (laughs) So... (laughs) How are they really going to lead? Because actually, at the top end of millennials, uh, people aged 33 and 34, well, I became CEO of Smarts Plus when I was 37, okay? So, you know, where are those leaders at? How is their leadership been developed and formed? Where's their understanding of security and identity and integrity? How do we build that into them? So, we're going to launch that research at the Christian Resources Exhibition on the Um, 16th of October this year, and then I'm writing a book called Leading the Millennial Way, um, which will take all of that learning from that research and and make it uh, more widely available to a wider audience. So come the autumn, um, there'll be the research, there'll be diagnostic tools for organizations and leaders to see how they measure up um, against what it means to be a, a millennial leader. Um, and there'll be the book and there'll be training courses and coaching uh, for leaders. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, we're on the cusp of it. And, and uh, this podcast is going to change as well. So we're coming to the end of, of season one. Uh, we're going to take a break over the summer. Um uh, it's been fantastic to interview leaders who really get these issues about you know being vulnerable, being close and in proximity to the people that you're leading, leading out of a heart that's that's inclined towards Jesus leading with character. You know, it's been wonderful interviews with people like Malcolm Duncan and Sim Dendi and John Paul Davis and uh, Bonnie Yucleone and Patrick Reagan, the list goes on. Absolutely wonderful. Um, but in the next season, which will start in the autumn, then we want to uh, go down a generation and start interviewing some millennial leaders um, and to get their story. Uh, many of them we've interviewed for the research. And I think there are just some inspiring stories of uh influential young people who are making a dramatic difference in society right now I know of uh, you know one lady who's running an organization that's um, working with traffic women in London uh, another guy who is um, you know as a millennial um, transforming the way that students think about justice. Uh, another guy who is living out his Christian faith in a in a silicon valley based uh, consultancy and learning what it means to be relational in that and to bring his Christian faith into that context so i 'm excited for people to listen to the next generation and, and we really want to give millennials a voice I think they 've been hard done by um, in um, the way they 've been portrayed and and actually, I think i've come to an understanding that they have something. In understanding how you lead out of who you are, um, that is a great lesson for other generations as well. So, uh, that's the way we're going. That's the direction uh, that we're going, and um, really looking forward to that and excited about it. So, we're going to take a break over the summer uh, on the podcast. Uh, That's mainly because. We've got a shed load of work to do (laughs) to get um, everything ready for the autumn. It's going to be launched on a new website called millennial-leader.com. If you go there right now, you can register to get updates, um, uh, particularly about the book.
0: So just finally, you talk about these millennials coming up in the next series of the podcast. Back when you were that age, starting out in Taiwan, what would you like to have known that you know now about leadership?
1: Do you know what? I've asked every other leader that, and I would just jolly well hoping you wouldn't ask me it. <laughs> it's such a difficult question to get your head around. Um, but I, I, for me, it's all about who's leading you. So it's all about depending on God. It's all about pushing into God. That actually your biggest moments of moving forward in your influence as a leader will come when you're on your knees because something's hit you down. And actually, the integrity checks and the challenges and those moments, which I call the dark nights of the soul, yeah, are actually the moments where you have to make the decision that you're going to push into God rather than back off. They're the moments of isolation where you may have to make the decision you're going to push into God rather than back off. And those are character moments. Um, the moments where you've set out on a massive vision and you've announced it to your whole team and then, uh, you know, someone pulls a plug on it, yeah? And you have to walk back into the office and you have to make a decision at that moment as what what are you gonna lead out on, what's important? Is your pride important or is it your integrity that's important or is your relationship with Jesus important? Um, and I wish someone had told me that when I was 20 because <laughs> it, <laughs> it might have solved a lot of heartaches, but the worst moments are the best moments um, as I look back, actually. So the, the worst moments of birth, the best moments, um, and what I thought were complete disasters were actually openings up into significant opportunities greater levels of spiritual authority, greater levels of influence and greater levels of um, character building in me. And ultimately, God loves us too much to let us do this stuff on our own. He loves us too much to let us do it in our own strength. And he calls us consistently through instances in our life, through character building instances, through pain, and through suffering uh to be totally dependent on him because that's where he wants us and that's a fantastic place to be
0: well that was a pretty good answer and uh fascinating to turn the microphone on you simon and really hear more of your story and now cue the Teddy music thanks for listening to this first series of the podcast We're going to take a break now for the summer and we'll be back in the autumn with some great interviews with millennial leaders. In the meantime, don't forget to catch up on the podcast you missed at forge-leadership-podcast.com.